Well, welcome everyone to the first of the Serious Security Seminars for 2016. Uh, we're here to introduce uh, Jim Gallagher, who joins us uh, from MicroSemi, where he has been active in security uh, for a number of years. Uh, prior to that, he was with General Motors. Uh, Mr. Gallagher has a master's in software engineering from Carnegie Mellon but he does trace roots back here to Indiana. He did his undergraduate work at Notre Dame. So with that, let me turn it over to Mr. Keller. Thank you, and appreciate the opportunity to be here today and walk through a little bit about MicroSemi and probably more importantly, a little bit about our approach to threat-driven security and why threat-driven security is so important. Um, that's going to be the primary focus of the discussion, is threat-driven security and why that's our preferred approach. But to really get a good understanding of that, I think it's important to talk a little bit about our vulnerability assessment capability and testing capabilities that we have within MicroSemi, and as well as how security fits in overall within MicroSemi, to give a flavor as to why we feel that this approach is the best approach for understanding what needs to be protected in a system and how to ascertain what should be protected within an overall system. So MicroSemi, just real brief overview. Um, we're a very diverse company. Um, lots of different products, uh, really a good comprehensive portfolio of semiconductor and system solutions. Uh, FPGAs being one of the prominent ones. You may have uh, heard of MicroSemi from Actel FPGAs, one of the leading uh, FPGA suppliers. We have timing and synchronization products, power over Ethernet and other power management products, mixed signal products, um, discrete components, and of course security components. Security is beginning to play a much bigger role in all of MicroSemi because we're seeing security begin to penetrate a need for all of those different areas. Yes, sir? Uh, field programmable gate array, uh, a hardware device that um, can emulate various software pieces and execute that software in fabric to um, offload computations from uh, microprocessors. Oh, and please do, I appreciate you asking that, please do ask questions as we go through this. Uh, it will be more enjoyable for all of us if, there, if this is more of a discussion than a presentation. Um, MicroSemi is a growing company. We're growing both organically uh, as well as acquisitions, a lot of different acquisitions um, to continue to grow and round out our overall product portfolio and a number of those trying to address uh, security in particular. 
So as I talk about security being a bigger part of MicroSemi, we start to lead into threat-driven security. Let's talk a little bit about who we are at MicroSemi Security Solutions. We're just up the road. We're uh, at the Purdue Research Park, just a few miles north of where we are right now. And we really focus exclusively on security. And that's those security, that security comes from integrating firmware, hardware, crypto, software, uh, integrating all of that together so that we can process and protect critical information as it's flowing through the system or it's at rest within the system. Uh, we're fortunate within MicroSemi, because we're such a large company, we can integrate different products from across MicroSemi instead of a lot of security companies are very small, focused on single activities. Within MicroSemi, we're able to grab techniques and uh, capability, including manufacturing capability, from across the company and integrate them into an overall security solution for our customers. Uh, we have a very experienced team of engineers, um, focused software, firmware, crypto, all on security, research, and implementation. We are hiring, so if any of you have that particular interest, um, we'd love to talk with you about that possibility as well. We actually started out of a serious lab. Uh, back in 2001, a number of professors had some great ideas about uh, how to obfuscate code and how to insert protection mechanisms into code uh, such that uh, the code would be more tamper resistant. Uh, we built out of that and have grown substantially over the 15 years uh, that we've now been doing this business and growing to provide scalable anti-tamper products and information assurance products. We also provide a number of services, services that help from a tamper standpoint. Um, it's very important when you're trying to put security in place to understand what you're trying to protect against. What asset are you trying to protect and who are you trying to protect it from? How, what are you trying to do to protect it? So one of the first steps that we'll talk about from a uh, security standpoint in understanding threats is what is your critical program information? What are you trying to protect in your program someone else from getting access to? To have this capability of doing threat analysis, you also have to be able to do some of the different attacks. Uh, two of the more common ones of recent from a physical standpoint is differential power analysis, where you're actually looking at the power traces that are coming out and being emitted from devices. And you can utilize that information to determine what, key, what keys may be within a system and other critical information. Uh, you can utilize those traces to help gain a good understanding of the system keys so that you can formulate different attacks. As well as the software uh, variant of that differential computation analysis where you're looking at registers and how the values within registers change while keys are being processed to get an understanding of what attacks may be viable in a system that can help break out what keys are being used. So you have to be familiar with those type of attacks. We perform vulnerability assessments utilizing some of that knowledge and other capabilities that we have. We perform different vulnerability assessments to help customers understand what, what uh, threats may exist for their system and how to protect against them. There's two primary ways to go about doing that. The first is a blue team activity as we call it. Blue team activity is great. We love doing those. It's where we get design information from the system supplier. So if you were a, a company and you had a product that you were concerned about being attacked, you'd provide us with that product. You'd provide us with the design information, potentially the source code, the overall requirements. 
and then we would utilize that information in our own penetration testing skills and assessment skills to do a study to determine what attacks are viable on that system, what could we get at, and we'll have interchanges back and forth with the designers during that uh, assessment to provide good information back to them on what may need to be uh, performed. Yes, sir. When you talk about system, are you talking about within a box? Or are you talking a system of several boxes? Both. Uh, both are, that's an excellent question. Both are within our wheelhouse of things that we can do. Um, we can assess things down to a single chip to determine what information can be obtained from that chip to a single board computer to an, a, a system uh, with a single board computer and other components on it as well as a set of different boxes. Uh, the same approach will work for all of those situations. Now, obviously, um, there's pros and cons to doing both, uh, doing either individual boxes at a time or putting them together within a system. Um, the individual boxes, you're able to dig more at the specific software elements within that and try and assess different uh, weaknesses that may be there. When you're looking at different boxes connected within a system, the interfaces are almost always where the weaknesses, is, weaknesses are. How is the data exchanged from one box to another? Is it protected during that transmission? Is it encrypted data? If it's encrypted, uh, where do the keys reside within the system? How are the keys protected or the key, do the keys uh, eventually show their face in the clear because it's using standard crypto algorithms uh, as opposed to either obfuscated uh, or encoded inputs and outputs or uh, white box versions of different crypto algorithms. So depending on what the system is, um, that will have an impact on uh, where the potential weaknesses may be and whether you would be best served uh, prying at an individual box one at a time or uh, attacking the overall system. We'll talk a little bit more about that on some subsequent slides because we're going to talk about uh, how to know what things to be concerned about uh, for uh, potential attacks in the system. So I mentioned Blue Team. Blue Team's when we get information from the designers and they're sharing that information with us and we can go back and ask questions. Um, a lot of our customers uh, like to do that. We think that's one of the most valuable. But, of course, it isn't exa exactly real world. A real world attack is a red team attack. Um, and that's where we get no design information. And there's no information provided at all other than someone drops a product off and says, here, go figure out what you can do. Um, and that's really what you know, a number of people in the world are doing. When you think either at nation state threats, uh, other countries uh, gathering information, they're just acquiring the technology and seeing what they can find. Or you can break it all the way down to someone who's trying to jailbreak their phone. Um, when the new phones come out, you know, essentially they don't have any design information. They're just trying to go see what they can do, utilizing known attacks that existed on previous variants of the product or open source attacks that may have been used on similar products. Um, that's a red team type attack. Uh, they're fun to do. They're a lot more challenging to do. And the issue with my mind with red team attacks, just because you're successful doing a red team attack, that doesn't mean that you found all of the security holes or all of the vulnerabilities. It says that you found a vulnerability. And then the corollary to that, just because you didn't find anything in your red team attack, it doesn't mean that there aren't any holes there. It just means that you ran out of time and money in your efforts to go find a particular attack. But Understanding different types of attacks and, uh, excuse me, understanding different types of assessments that we do within MicroSemi and, and many companies do this, 
form a, are needed for a good understanding as you form how do you do the protections? What do you want to do? How do you put something in place so that you know you've done the best job you can for securing your overall product? So we're going to talk about threat-driven security in this particular approach. As we go through this, we're going to talk about the different concepts. What concepts make up threat-driven security? What methodology do we use to do this? And it's very important in our mind to have a systematic approach to doing threat-driven security. We'll walk through an example of this methodology. It's a very simple and straightforward example, but it should give the flavor of what we're trying to talk about uh, from uh, threat-driven security. And how to understand what is enough security. That actually is one of the more difficult questions because there's always more security products that you can put in. There's always a new hack that's coming out. There's always a new attack that is coming out. So how do you know when you've put enough in your system? A lot of different things that we've identified as considerations that you should use for determining that type of uh, answer. And then we'll summarize a little bit, wrap up, and hopefully uh, continued questions as we go through. So. We all know security is an issue. If we've got a system that needs to be protected, why don't we just drop in whatever security products we can find? There's lots of different security products out there, software products, firmware products, uh, overall physical protection products. There's a ton of them out there. Uh, within MicroSemi, we've got a lot of them. We've got secure storage devices. We've got code seal for obfuscating and guarding code. We've got a uh, Smart Fusion 2, which is the most secure FPGA on the market. We've got Enforced IP, which uh, protects the uh, firmware that's running in an FPGA. We've got Whitebox to encrypt, to, uh, excuse me, to obfuscate the Whitebox algorithms. Why don't we just put all of these in? Next thing I think there's even one more. I think, yeah, we have Ethernet 5s. Lots of things we can put in to provide security. And that's just from MicroSemi. We haven't talked about the other 100 companies plus that are providing security. Yes? Is this Socratic or rhetoric? <laughs> Somewhat. I well, the, 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 well the, the, the challenge I see is if you look at the Internet of Things, they're all optimized for cost. And they don't need all those security options. Right. You're, you're exactly hitting the right point. You don't need all of them. In this case, you've got to have a good understanding of what you're trying to do before you just dump in every security product that's out there, because you have a cost concern, obviously. Some other uh, pr um, products will have size concerns, size constraints, how much they can put in, both physical size and physical memory that can be put into the device. Throughput will always be a concern. Overall performance of the product will be a concern. Um, all of those have to be considered. So how do you make those determinations? How do you decide? which ones you really want to put in place for all of this. So we'll talk a little bit about that. The first thing or, or next thing with all of this is we really have to have a methodical system level approach when you're developing a threat driven approach to it. And we're going to talk about threat trees and building of a threat tree. But you have to have a clear understanding of the security need. It's not just an arbitrary application of all the different security technologies that you can find. Um, you have to have an understanding of the security need, and that's paramount to developing a strong protection. The other aspect to recognize is that all protections can be compromised. Every protection that is put in place can be compromised. 
That's a, you have to accept that as fact because given enough time, resources, and money, anything is breakable. And adversaries have proven that over and over again. So our challenge is a different one. Our challenge is not to make our protection unbreakable, but rather our challenge is to make our protection so strong that the adversary runs out of time or money or resources or deems that it's not worth spending that much time, money, or resources to attack this particular product, and they lose interest and go attack something else. They go look for another product that may have similar technology that they can attack. They go look for the data in another place because they don't want to spend all their time, money, and resources. They want to do the limited amount possible. So our effort is build a strong protection so that we're making the effort to defeat the protection impractical. Make it so hard that they don't want to do it. Make it so time-consuming and costly that they don't want to go forward in doing that. A key element in doing all of that is understanding the weakest link. Because the weakest link of your design is where an attacker is going to find and they're going to pry and they're going to work through. So when we're building these threat trees, it's important for us to identify the weakest link that we put in place in the system. And we go about doing all of this by performing a threat um, a threat assessment by building a threat tree. And what's, what we do with this is, when we have our properly constructed threat tree, we have to make sure that the branches of that tree conclude with residual vulnerabilities, out here on the far right side of this, residual vulnerabilities that we deem are acceptable. That when you're looking at the residual vulnerabilities and an evaluation of those says that, yeah, that's okay. So we'll do a risk-based assessment on the residual vulnerabilities to determine if our protection is sufficient. So how do we go about doing this? I alluded to it earlier. First thing that we have to do is identify what asset needs to be protected and why does it need to be protected. We'll then systematically identify the threats that could compromise that asset. We have to identify mitigations for all of the material threats. And that's, that gets real tricky. I'll talk about each of these steps a little bit more, but that gets real tricky because some of them there's not a real clear mitigation for the particular attack. You have to get an understanding of does that mean it's a residual vulnerability at the step prior or do you really need to work to come up with a different mitigation for it. You'll repeat steps two and three over and over again, building a very deep threat tree such that the uh, the, the items that you've put in place, the mitigations, end up being protected as well. And then when we're done with all of that and we have our, the graph and, and tree completely built, we have to assess the residual vulnerabilities that are at the end of the threat tree to gauge the effectiveness of the design that we've come up with for providing protection for the overall system. So, first step with all of this. What assets are meaningful? I talked about this with critical program information. You have to determine what's important. If you have a Hello World program, that's not important. If you have an overall system that does some very basic stuff, but you want to limit access to it, what's important with that asset is perhaps the uh, authentication part of it. Uh, you may have a critical algorithm that you've written. You've written the best radar processing algorithm there is, and you don't want anyone else to get access to that radar processing algorithm. Well, that'd be a critical piece of technology. Critical data. 
uh, for banking companies. Uh, obviously, if they have your account number and your password, that's very critical information if they have your PIN that's stored. How are those protected? You have to identify the different assets, whether it's uh, the data that's entered, the personal information that may exist, the data that's stored in the system, the particular algorithms that run in the system that one company may want to protect another company from getting access to, prevent another company from getting access to. Uh, it may be the access to the system. You have to decide what assets in there are meaningful and then why are they meaningful. The why is just as important because that will help you understand the protection that needs to be identified to put in place for all of that. You have to consider, well, what happens if someone gains access to those assets and gains, um, gains that asset? Do they need something else to make it meaningful? Is it that that one portion of it's okay to go out, but the second portion isn't? Um, what if someone gains access to those assets? And then from a software side, you know, if you think about algorithms, what if someone modifies the asset? What if someone changes how the operation of the software is uh, performing? In some cases, you know, if it's a video game, it's an inconvenience. If it's an aircraft, we're probably all a little bit more concerned about that, at least if we're on it. So you have to understand what happens if someone modifies the particular assets. So let's look at a very simple um, and straightforward example. If we have a system on a chip that we're trying to protect, um, and it's got non-volatile memory sitting out there, it's got a crypto engine, uh, it's got volatile memory sitting external to the system, um, for this example, let's just determine that we want to protect the intellectual property that's in the embedded software. We've got a special algorithm. It's, it's a gaming algorithm, and we don't, want, uh, we don't want Rockstar to get access to that particular uh, algorithm. Um, so we're going to protect that. Uh, that's going to be our, uh, our what, and we're going to protect it because we want to prevent IP theft, because if they get access to that, they'll incorporate it into their product, and then we'll be out of business. That wouldn't be a good situation. So that's why we would want to do that potentially um, for this example. So what we look at next then is um, how could an adversary get access or modify that particular asset? Um, who are the adversaries? Who are you concerned about getting access to the information? Is it a competitor to take your information? Is it a thief who wants access to your bank account? Is it someone who just wants to uh, break the uh, protection on a video game so that they can uh, play that game rather than purchase it without purchasing it? Who are the adversaries? Because understanding the adversary is important because then you understand what capabilities that adversary is likely to have. Um, protecting against a uh, game hacker is different than protecting against another nation state. Um, protecting against uh, a group that's organized uh, solely to steal credit card information is different than both of those. You have to understand your adversary and then you start looking at how could they potentially modify the assets. Again, the adversary doesn't have to be successful at all times. They just have to be successful on one of their paths for, for getting the information. So it's important to look at the assets under all conditions. When the data is at rest, let's say you have data that's important to protect. When the data is at rest, how is it protected? When it's sitting out there in memory, is it encrypted in memory? Does it have other protections put around it? How do we know that the data at rest is secure? 
What about when the data is in use? We've likely unencrypted it when it's in use. Is there a path forward that the adversary can gain access to uh, the information by looking at the data while it's being processed within the system, whether in a microprocessor or in an FPGA or however the data is being used? Can the adversary find it as it's being used and pull it out of the system there? What about when it's in transit? The question that was asked earlier talked about assessing a whole system. One of the weaknesses in many systems is as data is transmitted from one box to the next box or one device to the next device. That's a key point uh, that can always be probed and attacked if the right protections aren't in place. So there's, there has to be consideration for protection with data in transit. All of those have to be secure or the data isn't secure. So contemplate when you're looking at um, what different threats could exist for a system need to consider data in use, data at rest, and data in transit. The other part of this is consider different market segment priorities. Because depending what the product is, there's different priorities for all of it. Most systems are going to be concerned about access um, and limiting access to only authenticated users. But what about privacy? Um, credit card information, financial transactions, banking, all concerned about uh, privacy and making sure that that data is not, not shared publicly or available publicly, that an adversary can't get access to it. They're going to be concerned about privacy aspects. Reliability, system uptime. If the stock market went down for, uh, for 10 minutes, that's a big problem. There's going to be lots of panic over that. That system has to be up all the time. Other systems are expected to be up all the time. Uh, satellite systems expected to be up all the time. Systems that have to be up 100% of the time have a certain set of attack vectors that need to be considered and different threats that need to be considered for all of that. Safety. I alluded to uh, aircraft earlier. We certainly all want to make sure that our aircraft isn't being tampered with. What about automotive? Uh, lots of publicity last summer about uh, attacks that were very successful in a demonstration mode, fortunately. But Miller and Valasek attacks on the Jeep uh, highway in St. Louis, uh, really pretty interesting when you look at those attacks and how with remote access, uh, those gentlemen were able to take control of uh, a Jeep driving down the highway. Uh, those are real attacks. Now, fortunately, in this situation, uh, it was truly being done for educational purposes and uh, with the knowledge, at least, of uh, others being involved. But those are things that have to be considered as we go forward. What adversaries are sitting out there and what can they do? Um, safety is important in those situations. And then I've already alluded to a couple times, theft. We don't want theft of data. We don't want theft of algorithms. Um, proprietary algorithms that are differentiators for companies, if they were to lose those differentiating algorithms, you know, they would go out of business. So this is a very real situation. And when you consider all of the exploits that are being done currently, we all hear generally about the uh, um, you know, data fraud and personal information attacks that get publicized and um, financial information target hacked from a couple years ago. But a lot of times companies get hacked and lose their information and a lot of their new product information and algorithms. Those attacks don't make the newspaper because they're not really interested in sharing with others that they've been attacked and had a, had a uh, setback. So there are lots of different attacks that are going on and theft of systems uh, across companies 
that need to be protected against. So when you're putting together, and we're helping, when we put together threat trees, we're always trying to consider what is the market segment priority and what might we need to do uh, to protect, what might we need to protect against. So in this example that we've worked through, um, what do we have to be concerned about? Well, we said we're concerned about IP theft and the IP in our embedded system. So let's consider a couple things. When the data is at rest, how could someone get that data? Well, obviously, they could just read that data from the non-volatile memory that was sitting outside the system. Very easy to probe non-volatile memory and dump that and get the information. So that would be a threat vector. What about when the data is in use down at the bottom? Uh, they could capture the software at runtime by just simply probing the memory interfaces. Again, that's a very simple attack. Uh, when the data is in use and when the data is in transit, you know, when we're booting up the system, they can probe the boot interfaces and capture the software as it's being loaded into the system. That's a threat to be concerned about. Simple threats that as we build the threat tree, we're immediately thinking, how could, how could this embedded software get taken? These are three of the threats that would potentially exist for this very straightforward system. So, next what we're going to do is identify mitigations for all of the meaningful, <coughs> meaningful threats. Um, and we're going to analyze each threat to determine likelihood, likelihood of occurrence. If the odds of a threat are as good as me winning Powerball tonight, you know, do I really have to be that concerned about it? Depends. Maybe, probably not, but maybe. Again, it depends, thinking back, who's my adversary? Is it a nation state that's going to put 10,000 people on it and work on it for a year? Or is it, again, my video game hacker who's going to say, no, I don't need to worry about that. You know, but likelihood of occurrence is something to consider. The less likely the occurrence of that threat is, obviously, typically, the less likely you need to be concerned about it, or it may impact how strong of a mitigation you put in place for that particular threat. So then evaluate the risk. What's the associated risk? If that threat is successful, what does the adversary get? And how important is it that they got that particular piece of information? Based on the results of the prior two questions then, determine if a threat is in need of mitigation. Do we need to mitigate that particular threat? Do we need to put something in place so that the threat we identified will be protected against? And certainly, we want to identify mitigations for each of the high-risk threats. So with our example, we just keep building our threat tree as we go forward. You know, if we look at how could we, how could we prevent the attack of reading software at rest from non-volatile memory from being meaningful? Well, obviously, pretty straightforward. Again, just encrypt the software at rest. Excuse me. Just encrypt the software while it's being stored whenever you write out to uh, memory, encrypt it, and store the encryption key in a system-on-a-chip processor that's password protected. That's going to make it very difficult for an adversary to get that, um, to execute the attack to read it from non-volatile memory because now they're reading garbage. They're reading just encrypted data that they would have to execute a different attack on to be successful. Um, we could also, for the, uh, the boot-up se sequence, we could load, um, make our software load protected. Uh, with encryption, a different type of encryption, or even the same encryption we just talked about. Make sure that load is encrypted so that an adversary has to break encryption for that particular attack. And then in this case, again, not, not a real-world case, but maybe I decided I can live with this particular 
uh, threat, not that I would in the real world, but I can live with this. This would end up being a residual vulnerability if I decided that the uh, capturing software at runtime by probing memory interfaces wasn't something I was concerned about. So now that we've identified mitigations in the overall system, they've become part of the system. I've put encryption in on the last step to protect certain, uh, certain variables that are sitting on it and data sitting on in memory. So now that encryption is part of my system. So an attacker is going to try and attack that. How can they go about attacking that? The mitigations that we've just identified are now part of our system, and as part of our system, they're subject to attack. So we have to now assess how an adversary would attack those particular mitigations that we've put in place, and then identify mitigations for all of those material threats. And we're going to repeat that process over and over again until all of the remaining threats that we've identified, all of those we deem that they're acceptable. So continuing our example out here on the right, uh, well, for a data at rest, we've encrypted it, but maybe the adversary is going to do a brute force search to guess the password. You know, maybe they're, all, maybe they're going to do an attack on the password-protected uh, um, processor to try and get the password. There's different attacks that they can build off of here. And I by no means mean to imply that for each... Uh, attack, there's only one mitigation. It's a many-to-one uh, ratio, just like for every mitigation, there's many-to-one attacks that can occur as well. But they can put a brute, pass, uh, brute force search on. They could use side channel analysis, a form of differential power analysis, to recover the encryption key for the software. That'd be a way they could go about it as well. In the real world, we're going to identify many, many different uh, threats for each of the mitigations and many, many different threats for each of the assets uh, because, there, again, there's different ways to get at the particular data. So once we've done all that, at the end of the day, the unmitigated threats at the end of the threat tree, they're referred to as residual vulnerabilities. Residual vulnerabilities are such that this has been deemed that the system can accept. Um, depending on the system, the residual vulnerabilities are going to be different, but it's important to know that when you have a residual vulnerability out at the, uh, out at the end, if you don't have mitigation on these two, then you've deemed that these two attacks are okay, and that if someone is successful with that, you're okay with that because you think those particular attacks are so hard or so time-consuming, uh, require so much money or resources that you're okay with those. But our protection is only as strong as the weakest branch of the tree. When we put this threat tree together, and, and this doesn't even really represent real world because it's not big enough, we've got all these threats out here that we identified up against the uh, initial prevent IP theft. We developed all these mitigations and continued the threat tree out. Yes, sir? So if you look at the threat tree, the, 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 the red is the cost to the attacker. The, uh, the green is the cost to the, the defender. Have you worked out algorithms in terms of what those costs might be to implement either? And at what point in time do you say, and algorithms to address, given the cost, given the impact of the uh, successful attack, and the risk of it even happening, 
and the implications? Have you worked out algorithms to kind of rationalize all that? Um, uh, strictly speaking, algorithm-wise, no, I couldn't say that. Um, conceptualized, yes. And in fact, uh, either one or two slides from now, uh, we'll have a list of things to consider as to how to determine what is enough out here. Um, it'll vary per system, and we've got a set of questions that we ask to help drive that answer. Um, it's structured, but not truly algorithmic. With this protection, um, as we look out here, you know, the threats and mitigations, threats and mitigations, there's always a, a red box at the end. That's the sad reality of the world. There's always a threat that can exist to defeat a mitigation. Again, we're trying to make it such that that threat is significant enough that it really couldn't be uh, executed. But the key with all this is our protection is only as strong as the weakest branch. If this branch right here, this threat, is really executable and they can overcome the mitigation that's next to it, and then they can execute this threat to overcome this mitigation, they can overcome, and you are, we already were concerned about this threat because we put a mitigation in place. If this threat then can overcome this mitigation and this threat overcomes this mitigation and so on and so on, all of a sudden they have the IP. They didn't have to execute this path. They didn't have to execute any other path. They only have to be successful on one of them. Our protection is only as strong as the weakest branch with that. And the visual for that is we can build a fortress with brick walls, um, heavily guarded and locked gates. But if there's a backdoor path or there's a hole in our protection somewhere, that adversary is going to go through that protection right there. That's how they're going to go in. If there's a wide open window and your front door is deadbolt locked, that thief isn't going to go through the deadbolt lock. They're going to go right through the open window. And that's the analogy with all of this to understand that we've got to make sure that when we're looking at this protection that all of these threats at the end of the threat tree are acceptable to us. That we're okay if an adversary um, that an adversary could potentially try to do one of these because we think it's going to cost them too much time, too much money, or too much resources to be successful with all of that. So the question that was just asked, what is enough security? Because cost, there's got to be a cost-benefit analysis to all of this. We talked earlier, we don't want to just drop in every security product that exists. It costs too much to go do that. Cost uh, dollar-wise and cost, of course, uh, throughput-wise, performance-wise, as well as memory size in the overall product. So what's the impact of a security failure? How can you determine that? Well, you know, these are 10 of the questions that we ask. We've got about 20 more that we have on our checklist. What value does the IP or data objectively represent to the business? Is it a true differentiator where if we lose that algorithm and our competitor gets it, we're done out of business, then we better have darn good protection on it. If our algorithm is the same as somebody else's for a particular thing and it's not our differentiator, then okay, we don't need as strong a protection on that particular item or we don't want to spend as much money protecting that particular item. We have to understand the value of the data we're protecting because we don't want to spend $2 million protecting something that's worth $100,000. That's not a good use of our money. Um, how quickly is the technology evolving? You know, we, we talk to game companies regularly and they say, look, if we can protect this and make sure that nobody can uh, break our password protection and get unauthorized access to this game for six weeks, we're great. 
because somebody who wants to play the game and that interested in breaking it to go do it isn't going to wait take six weeks to go do that they're going to buy it before then it's not worth their time to spend six weeks breaking something that costs them ninety dollars um, video game sales or, or computer game sales the large bulk of them happen within the first six weeks of production so do you need to put a protection in place that's going to protect a video game for 10 years? No, you really don't. That's not, not that important. I don't think any, anybody would be concerned about Pong being broken right now. Not an issue. So understand the timeliness and value of the data. But there are certainly systems that we want protected for 10 years and much longer than 10 years. Financial systems in particular would be one example. Defense systems being another. Understand how quickly the technology is evolving and what timeliness of protection needs to be put in place. Can the adversary produce the data independently? If they can produce it independently, how valuable is it? How much protection do you want to put in place? Or are you just going to put minimal protection in to make it, uh, again, not worth their while to go do it? Do you have something that someone could buy from another vendor and get it that way? Is that what you should be concerned about? Uh, when you think about um, uh, changing performance of the system, okay, how big of a deal is it if uh, performance of the system is changed? Um, an automotive example in this case. If your radio performs a little differently than it's supposed to and you lose performance of your radio for five seconds, it's disappointing, but not the end of the world. If your airbag deploys or doesn't work for a few minutes and you happen to crash, then that's a bit of a problem. So again, different systems within the same overall system certainly have different protection levels that may need to be put in place for that type of system. Um, and then consider what countermeasures. If you put certain mitigations in, how much value are they adding or is the next threat down the line uh, so similar that they could already overcome that just as easily and it's not as critical. But for all of those, ask those questions. Consider the system. Um, you have to tailor the defenses to the capabilities of the adversary. You have to understand what that adversary is going to try to do, what data they're trying to collect, timeliness of that data, and what they could do with all of that. Uh, and there really aren't two systems that are the same. We've done hundreds of protections on systems within Microsemi Security Solutions. No two systems are the same. No two protections are the same. Do we pull concepts from one to support the other? Absolutely. But every system is different because the adversaries are different, the IP that's being protected is different, and how they're going to go, how adversaries are going to go about attacking that system are all different. So it's important to, to ask and understand to make sure that we put the right level of protection in to secure a product appropriately. We've got a lot more information about all of this. I could probably talk about this. Uh, for hours. A um, lot more information about this. I'm assuming the slides are going to end up being made uh, available. There's information about our security center of excellence that exists within uh, Microsemi that talks about different ways we go about providing security, products that we have that um, uh, include security and provide security for customers, and our overall approach and why we think it's so important with going forward. And then in summary, you know, from a threat-driven security standpoint, it's very important to understand um, what we're doing. And we believe that 
Uh, having a systematic approach to security provides significant benefits. The steps that I walk through, the approach that we take with all of it has worked for us across a number of different systems uh, from individual chips to single board computers to uh, boxes to connected boxes within an overall system. Uh, we have a lot of these capabilities within MicroSemi to do the threat-driven risk assessments. Blue teaming and red teaming are fun activities to go in and attack different systems that lead to performing good protection designs all built on threat-driven security and the need for that. And then again, another uh, website that's available out there, there's lots more information out there, a slew of different white papers that exist on uh, threat-driven security and security concepts um, that are worthwhile when you're developing security. Yes, sir. Do you, do you keep available for your clients like a portfolio of threats based on the industry sector and application that are out there? In other words, if they're going to get threatened, this is the type of capabilities that the adversary might choose to use? Absolutely. We've, we've done enough different markets that at this point we have a good feel for the different threats that exist in various systems. <coughs> Excuse me. So we have listings of those and standard sets of questions that will ask customers um, what I, as far as what IP they're particularly concerned about and then we'll usually prod in some different directions saying well what about this because we may have done something similar. We may have done an assessment of a similar product and that customer was concerned about this and we found a particular vulnerability. Now we can't obviously share the names of companies we've worked with or particular um, threats when it's uh, explicitly linked to a customer but I can, you know, I can sit here and tell you, you know, we've done a DRM system where we broke into a DRM system for a particular customer. I just can't tell you which customer we've done it for. Just one follow-on question. So, you know, given that nothing is constant in this business, where do you get your intel fees on what might come over next that you haven't had to address yet? This is a ever-changing uh, world. Your, your question is dead-on accurate. This is ever-changing. There's new threats being developed right now. There's new holes being identified right now. It's a chase. It's not a game and we hate to say it like this, but it's fact and we accept it. It's a, not a game we're ever going to win. We're just trying not to lose. Um, the threats are going to evolve. We stay up to date by participating in black hat conferences, reading, uh, reading open source papers that are put out. Um, we do a number of, uh, a lot of work for government uh, customers that gives us access to certain information that's useful. Uh, we just stay involved with industry and we've got a lot of uh, people who like to prod at products and are very happy to see how they can break something. It's a, it's a great skill to, uh, to have. Those guys are very interested in seeing where holes are and identifying those holes so that we can provide the right protections. Um, other questions? Yes? Have you done much with... Uh if you have you done much with uh, val uh, system validation uh, or uh, attempts where you can actually go through and prove resistance across a class of, of vulnerabilities? Yeah, formal proofs would be is something we've talked about and have been interested in. We have not gone forward and done a formal proof on any particular uh, system. 
I think it's going to be difficult because, again, at the end of the day, the adversary is always going to win if they want. What we would like to put in place is some means of showing that the mitigation we put in place um, mathematically works. Instead, we're left to doing a system bench verification to show that the mitigation we put in place for the attack that was identified uh, was sufficient. Um, but because there's an ever-changing list of attacks, we can't prove that it's sufficient for all attacks. Other questions? Okay. Well, I'd like to thank Mr. Gallagher. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. And I'll be back uh, next week. Uh, I don't know who's on the schedule yet. I just uh, last week had invited three more people, uh, but as to exactly when they'll be on the schedule hasn't been determined yet. So watch the website to see what's coming up, and I will see you all next week. Uh, for those of you taking the class, this as a class, the policy, I believe, is you were allowed two absences. Uh, I'll, I'll verify that and send an email if it's something else. You can uh, watch the video, write up a summary of what you've learned, and send that to me as an alternative if you are unable to make class. Uh, so that, that's an option. Uh, so that's the kind of key administrative. If there's any other administrative details uh, other than make sure you sign in on the sign-in sheet because that's how we keep track of people. So thanks, and I will see you all next week. Thank <laughs> you.